Can I invite you please to turn to the book of Exodus, and this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 2, or at least the first part of chapter 2. We began last week with our motto text, looking at chapter 3. We just uh, step back in time for a while to look at the events surrounding the birth of Moses. And we're going to read the first ten verses. Exodus chapter 2 verse 1. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him, when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Let's pray. Father, again, as we come to listen to you speak to us through your word, we pray for understanding and a response that is appropriate to the message that you're going to bring to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That uh, portrait is of a man called William Cooper, or Cowper. It's actually pronounced C-O- spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but um, it's understood that that's how it's pronounced, Cooper. William Cooper. Some of you may have heard of him. If you watch The Great Railway Journeys this week with Michael Portillo, it's a series that uh, he uh, introduces of uh, railway journeys throughout the UK. He's on a journey from Euston to Leeds this week, and he stops off early in the week at the village of Oney in Buckinghamshire, which is where William Cooper lived for a while. William Cooper was uh, a great 18th century poet and latterly a hymn writer in his life. He wrote uh, several relatively well-known hymns, and those of you that are of my generation that grew up singing hymns rather than spiritual songs will remember some of them. Many of them are sadly sort of passing out of our... uh, our knowledge, but one in particular still remains uh, fairly well known and fairly popular, and it's the hymn "God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform." Cooper was keenly aware of the truth that God does indeed move in mysterious ways. He had a very unhappy life 
in many respects. His mother died when he was only six years of age, leaving him to be raised by his father, with whom, sadly, he didn't seem to have a very good relationship. And it may be that poor relationship that contributed to some great degree in Cooper's subsequent difficulties. His father pushed him into the practice of law, which he didn't really enjoy, and he eventually abandoned it very early on in his early 30s. But it left him mentally scarred. Cooper suffered great depression throughout his life. He had four very, very significant major battles with that dreadful illness, which led him to uh, attempt, failed attempts at suicide. He ended up in... Uh, an asylum, St. Albans Insane Asylum, where, amazingly, he became a Christian. He became a Christian because he just happened to come across a Bible that was left on a bench in the garden. He picked it up and he read it, and God used a number of passages in the Bible, notably Romans 3, to open his eyes to the goodness of God. The goodness of God in Jesus and the sufficiency of the atoning work of Jesus. Cooper moved to Oney in Buckinghamshire after his conversion in order for him to join his good friend John Newton, who had by that time become the curate of the parish church. John Newton, the slave trader, turned Anglican minister. And together... In partnership, they wrote a number of hymns, the only hymns. God Moves in a Mysterious Way is a wonderful combination of wonderful assertions about God's goodness, about his sovereignty, about his wisdom, along with those encouragements and those commands to take courage and to trust in God, no matter what the circumstances. It's a beautiful expression of the kind of faith that William Cooper uh, had, the faith that sustained him through those long days, months of darkness and despair. God moving in mysterious ways in his life. And indeed, God's ways are full of mystery. They are full of of glory. And here in chapter 2 of the book of Exodus, we see something of that. God's people, the Hebrews, the people of Israel, are oppressed. They are in slavery in Egypt. How has that come about? Well, at the end of the story of Genesis, the story of Joseph, who rose to become the prime minister of that country who was able to bring the rest of his family, his father and his brothers, to join him to escape the famine which was threatening Canaan at that time. Joseph and all his brothers and that generation died out, but the Israelites increased in number. And they become so numerous that the uh, land of Egypt was being more and more populated by them. A new pharaoh, a new king arose who had uh, no real knowledge of Joseph and his influence in the land at uh, the time he was there. He came to power and he was afraid that the Israelites would eventually completely dominate. They would become so powerful that they would enter into perhaps alliances with the enemies of Egypt and take control. And so they forced 
the Hebrew people into forced labor. And the more that they were oppressed, the amazing thing is, the more that they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians worked ruthlessly to try and curb their growth, to curb their vitality. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And so the king, the pharaoh, took desperate measures. He ordered the Hebrew midwives, two in particular, who were there present at the birth of every Hebrew baby born in the land, he ordered them to kill every single baby boy that they delivered to a Hebrew family. But because these two women feared God, they didn't do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live and made an excuse. And so the pharaoh decided that he needed to take tougher measures. So he issued a decree, he issued an order that every single Egyptian had a responsibility if they came across a Hebrew baby boy, they were to throw that child into the Nile so that that child would perish. Let's remember that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, were the descendants of Abraham and God had promised Abraham that he would bless the nations through his descendants. The Lord had staked the future of the human race on his plans to save the human race through the descendants of Abraham. But those descendants here in Egypt are in deep trouble. What is the Lord going to do? Are his plans to save the human race going to drown in the River Nile? Well, the answer to that question is that God had his chosen people in the right place at the right time. God was going to work through a selected child of a selected family. God isn't finished with his people. A child is born to a Levite family and is straight away marked out as a potential deliverer for God's people in at least two ways. Firstly, his mother, notice, sees that this baby that she has just uh, given birth to is described as, quote, a fine child. A fine child. But then, of course, doesn't every mother think that their baby <laughs> is a beautiful baby? May not look it to us, but hey, every mother thinks, wow, isn't my baby wonderful? But, you know, there's more to it than that. That phrase, she saw he was a fine child, is actually very reminiscent of the statements in Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember that every stage of the creation process, it says that God saw what he had made and saw that it was good. Yeah, it's exactly the same word. This child's mother saw that this baby was good in the same way that God viewed every act of his creation. God saw that the creation was good. 
the mother saw that this child was good. The child created by God was created exactly in the way that God had in mind. But then that point is stressed further when we told that his mother hides him in this pitch-covered basket and puts it in the Nile. And what is significant there is that word translated from the Hebrew as basket is only ever used in the Old Testament on one other occurrence. It's the Ark of the Covenant. And so what the writer here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is saying is that this child is destined to be rescued just as Noah and his family was rescued from the water. And just as with Noah's deliverance, it's going to have a great significance for all humanity. God is working through a selected child of a selected family. But then secondly, the Lord will work in a mysterious way. This child is marked out as a potential deliverer of his people. But his life is under threat. This royal contract was out requiring every Egyptian, if they found a Hebrew baby, to put them to death. How is God going to preserve this baby, this specially selected baby? Where is he going to be hidden until the time arrives for him to become the deliverer of his people? Who's going to train him in the ways of God to make him ready for that role? And here is the wonderful irony in this story. Moses is drawn out of the water by the daughter of the very man that wants him put to death. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible what God is doing here? And then, even more incredible, the child is given back to his own mother to be looked after. And what is even more amazing, the mother gets paid to look after her own baby. God moving in mysterious ways. But not only is it deeply ironic, it's all also incredibly precarious. You know, what if this child is eventually discovered to be a Hebrew? When he grows up, he goes back to live in the palace, to be brought up as the child of Pharaoh's daughter to be educated into the ways of the Egyptians, to become an Egyptian prince. But what if it turns out, or what if it's discovered, that actually he is of Hebrew birth? He's in Pharaoh's palace, right at the very centre of all the evil opposition directed at God's people. You can't get much more precarious, much more vulnerable than that, can you? But again, here it is, the Lord working in surprising ways. Then thirdly, the Lord will work through people in God's place at the right time. You know, I've been speaking about what God is doing here through the birth and deliverance of Moses. But you might say, well, where actually is God in all this? Because he gets no mention. He's not mentioned in this chapter until I think it's verse 23. How can we speak of God at work in this scenario? Well, let's look at it. 
Surely, firstly, he's at work through the two midwives that are mentioned in chapter 1. Those two godly ladies that so feared God that they refused to carry out what the Pharaoh required of them. They displayed immense courage in being disobedient. Then, of course, there was Moses' mother. She gives birth, and because she sees that the child is a fine child, she decides to hide him for as long as she can, for three months somehow, concealing him. But then it got too difficult, so she puts him in this basket by the River Nile, in this mini ark, doing what you'd expect a mother to do quite naturally, to do the best that she could to protect her innocent child. But really, she is acting out what God wants her to do, furthering God's plans to preserve this child who has a tremendous task ahead of him. She may not have been conscious of that, but she was doing it nonetheless. And then, of course, the next person through whom the Lord works is Moses' older sister, Miriam. As she watched Pharaoh's daughter finding the baby in the basket, she has this bright idea and goes and suggests that there could be some Hebrew lady that would nurse the child for her and goes and gets her own mother. She must have noticed that the, the face of the princess, the demeanor of the princess, displayed really a heart of compassion. And she acted on that. God gave her that kind of insight, I'm sure. What a turnaround. Instead of this Hebrew baby boy being killed by royal command, he's brought into the royal household and brought up as a prince of Egypt. God moving in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. And then, of course, there is Pharaoh's daughter who has a very instrumental part in this story. She goes down to the Nile. She sees the baby, hears his cries, and takes pity on, her, pity on him. And unlike her father, who has these genocidal tendencies, she obviously hasn't inherited her father's personality. She had a maternal heart, and she was moved to tears. God is moving in mysterious ways using these individuals to further his purposes. But you know, there are a couple of points that maybe could be brought out here we just digress a little bit. And that is to notice the role of women in this story. Up to this point in Exodus, all of the Lord's work has been carried out through women. The midwives, Moses' mother, Moses' sister, Pharaoh's daughter. And that's significant. Because, you know, there are some people who think that the place of women in the Bible is pretty down the scale. That the Bible treats women rather negatively, particularly when it comes to serving God. And yet, all through the Bible, all through the Bible, God shows the highest regard for women. And he uses women in profound ways 
to bring about God's purposes. It's here in this story. It's in the whole of the Bible. It's in the New Testament where women played a significant part in the life of Jesus. Where women played a significant role in the life of the early church. And that says to me, and I hope says to us, that we should not underestimate the role of women in the life of our church. If women are gifted by God and anointed by God, then they should be set apart by us to serve the church and to serve the God, to serve God in whatever way God has gifted and anointed them. That's important that we play a part in ensuring that women are set free in order to serve God in the way in which God has gifted, anointed, and called them. And that includes leadership. We need to ensure that God's anointed people, whoever they are, male and female, are appointed irrespective of gender. But the other amazing thing is, from this story, is that, notice, one of those helpers is Pharaoh's daughter. She's a woman, obviously, but she's also a pagan. She's also a worshipper of other gods, of false gods. And yet she is still capable of acting with compassion. She's still capable of taking her stand against evil. She is still capable of furthering the work of God, even though she was not aware of it. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us this, that God is sovereign in whom he chooses whom he chooses to further his plans you know God's people don't have a monopoly on good behavior and that appears again in the Old Testament do you remember the story of Rahab the harlot with Joshua and the story of Jericho God used her to serve his purposes and what about Ruth the Moabitess, who became an ancestor of Jesus himself, chosen by God to accomplish his purposes. Pharaoh's daughter is probably not acting out of love for the God of Israel, but the very fact that she acts in line with the will of God shows that God is working in her life. And that's a lesson for us to learn. We live in a world that is hostile to God. But not everybody in this world is hostile to God. And people can still be used by God to help us and indeed to challenge us in terms of our own behavior, our own compassion or lack of it, even though they may not necessarily be Christians. We see in this story God working out his own plans in his own way and in his own time scale according to his own wisdom. And we can find that assurance that although days may be dark and unclear and uncertain, nevertheless, they are still planned and everything will be all right. God's ways are higher than ours. His ways often do seem to be mysterious. And we need as a church to remember that. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. He can be trusted. 
And he will work all things together for good for his people and for his plans of salvation. You know, Moses was going to become the great deliverer deliverer of the children of Israel. But there's one thing that he couldn't do for them, and that was to take on their sin and evil and overcome them. That could only be ultimately achieved through another fine child, another special child, one who was marked out by God to become an even greater deliverer than Moses, and that was, of course, Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. You know, he, more than anyone else, came into this world as the right person at the right time. And our faith in Jesus as Savior needs to be really strong, needs to be really mature if it's going to survive days of darkness, days of uncertainty that inevitably come upon us at times. We must have that strong faith, a trustful faith that rests in the knowledge that behind everything that happens to us, there is a secret purpose of God that's at work. It must be an expectant faith that cries out, God will provide. And to believe that he will. And thirdly, it needs to be a patient faith. God had promised 400 years earlier that he would go down to Egypt with Jacob and surely bring him back again. The time would come when that promise would be fulfilled. But it would come in accordance with God's timetable. So let's be patient. Let's believe that God is working his purpose out in our generation. Let's be the people who are in the right place at the right time. The place where God wants us to be. Let us be the right people for such a time as this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word to us this morning. We thank you for the encouragement that it brings to know that you are working your purposes out as year succeeds to year. We thank you that you have set us in this place at a time like this in order to be available to be people of your choosing, set apart by you to serve the purposes of God. Lord, help us to respond to your word to us this morning, to be willing to take up the challenge and to run with it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.